Gresham College presents The Eye at War, Preventing and Treating Combat Injuries, A 2,000-Year Journey by William Aliff, Gresham Professor of Physic. Um, this is probably the most celebrated incident of an eye injury at warfare with um, King Harold allegedly having the arrow in his eye here. Um, the identity of this person underneath the word Harold has remained controversial and is controversial to this day. But nevertheless, even if it is not Harold himself, it is certainly a major and mortal eye injury. Now, back in ancient times, um, helmets were fairly simple. They were these pilos helmets, and pilos comes from the Greek, which was a felt travelling hat. It gives no protection to the face, but it does give some protection to the head and from direct blows from above. Um, Further developments led to the Corinthian helmet. Um, This is called Corinthian because coins from Corinth Um, showing the goddess Athena wearing these types of helmets. And there's various different types. This one is from the British Museum and has this beautiful inscription around it. It said, the people who lived in Argos won this helmet in battle from the Corinthians, which is another clue that it was quite common in that part of the world. And stylistically, it's important because it's the first piece of metalwork that's produced in Europe that has absolutely no connections anywhere else in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. Um, It's beautiful, it's made out of very thin, one-sheet metal, there is no evidence of any seams, and beaten out, it has a big problem though. It's cylindrical, so if you bash someone on the head, it turns round, and they go blind, and it clangs them, and they can't hear through it. So most of the pictures the Greek warriors, you see, wearing it on the back of their heads, Um, and that's the reason why. And led to the development of this, the Attic Helmet, which is going to go on and be developed into the Galea by the Romans, and this becomes the more popular sort of headgear, where you can actually hear... And you can actually see a bit more out of it because it does restrict the field of view. Now, the Romans developed eye protection a little bit more um, in a sophisticated fashion um, because they had these people called gladiators. And some of these gladiators' job was deliberately to go and poke the eye out. And in fact, Poplamarchus here was very um, famous because after he threw his haster, the spear, the only thing left to him in this little round shield, was a small stabbing spear that is exactly the right shape to go into somebody's eye and kill them, as you can see here. There were other issues to do with eye protection. I mean, this is this beautiful helmet here with this wonderful visor, very complex visor, um, but from Mamillo. Other gladiators wore helmets that were deliberately blinding. There were no eye holes in them. And uh, these are the Andabate, and these were people sentenced to death in the arena. And it was light um, entertainment for the Romans, of course, who didn't have TV and things like that. So what they would do is to have these blind people beaten into the centre, where they would be then slash at each other until one or other of them was killed. And um, because they were completely blind, it was a highly enjoyable afternoon between the peanuts and wandering on to the next, murdering the Christians, one supposes. But um, here they are, completely blind. So several issues to do with eye injuries and um, warfare um, brought up by these early um, images. Now, the nasal helmet comes back into fashion in early Anglo-Saxon, and particularly in England. And this is an English example uh, of the Coppergate helmet, which is 8th century. And we can actually see Anglo-Saxon warriors wearing these things, actually being defeated by the Picts in this war, on the left-hand side, chasing them off back to Northumbria, where they belong. And this was a great Pictish victory. 
But uh, what now the Picts? I mean, they disappeared fairly soon afterwards uh, and only leave just a few of these stelae and some inscriptions to remind us that they existed at all. A Coppergate helmet actually has an inscription on it. Many of these helmets do. And it says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit and God, and to always say, Amen. So Christian God, of course, going into battle with these knights. We mentioned about nasal helmets before, and we said there's a, there's a problem with them, is that you can't recognise who is who when you're wearing a helmet until the invention of heraldry. So one of the big issues they had was when William was thought to have been killed and struck off his horse, he had to leave, leave his helmet off, off his face and turn round. And here he is being um, confirmed by Eustace, who turns out later to be useless and actually leaves the field, but that's another story. Uh, here, he's saying, here, here he is. And William cries out, I live and with God's help I will conquer yet, which rallies the Normans who then come back up the field. And then, of course, the next thing we have is all the English army running away, many of them without their helmets on. And because they don't have their helmets on, they've all got arrows in their eye or they're grabbing their faces where they've had missile attacks on their heads, which, from which they'd been protected for four hours by the shield wall and their helmets. So actually, helmets were important, and they did protect people from aerial missiles and also from side slashes of swords. The um, cartoon above is labelled The English Army Flee, the Final Surviving Seed, and in the tapestry at Fatuga the Angli, it was added in 1814, probably by the French, uh, in a fit of anti-English sentiment. The date probably gives you a clue, but they only had one year to enjoy it before that was actually turned back on itself. We've mentioned that these nasal helmets do leave people vulnerable to missiles. And before the invention or the reinvention of visors and the invention of visors for warfare, we can see all these soldiers here in the Winchester Bible not wearing them. We can see this rather large soldier fully kitted out in the full armour of the 12th century. Um, he's got a nasal helmet on, but of course it doesn't protect him. And here is the young shepherd boy, the medieval shepherd boy, with his sling straight into the eye. Down he goes dead, up comes the shepherd boy, cuts off his head. So missiles are becoming an important thing in warfare and they're leading to issues which are exposing the weakness of male armour and nasal helmets. We need greater protection of the face. So they made these rounded helmets and here we have a picture of uh, Thomas a Beckett just before he has the back of his head cut off and becomes a, a bloody... Um, sort of uh, sacrificial um, and put it all into a vase and is given out to pilgrims for the next 400 years, uh, diluted, of course, in wine as they run out of the real stuff. But nevertheless, you can see the soldier, which is the point of it here, wearing this rounded helmet. Now, the image is rather bright because I'm not able to use my computer to show you here, but nevertheless, you can see a facial guard that's been put round here. And that facial guard is rather important because it actually gives a slit for the eyes and protects the eyes um, against aerial missiles and, more importantly, lances. And then they develop this, the Great Helm, which is going to be the mainstay of heavy cavalry and knighthood. You can see them in many images. This one is from a Polish Bible, the same helmet, and this is used for the next 300 years. And as you can see, great protection against early medieval arrows. The problem with them is you can't see out of them. 
So if you're an archer, they're not really very helpful. And if you're a light cavalryman who's got to go skirmishing to find out what's happening on the battlefield and you've only got a tiny little slit to look through, it's like sort of the man in the telephone box, isn't it? You're not actually going to be able to tell what's happening behind you, around you, to the side, above or below you. So they invented a different type of helmet, these bassinets and the salet, which was the Italian version of the bassinet. And originally they came faceless and some of them came with a bit of nasal protection but they were absolutely appalling at protecting the face. And a series of events happened that developed the movable visor that can be seen on all these later examples. And in fact, one of the earliest examples is said to be this painting by Andrea di Bonanuto, which is the only painting that we know of this artist, but it's amazing because he paints you know, three large walls of this in the old chapter house, which subsequently becomes the Spanish chapel um, when the Spanish wife of the Grand Duke Cosimo comes with her courtiers. Now, on this wall, there's a bunch of soldiers, and one of these soldiers is wearing this visored helmet. He's actually, got it o- he's actually got it open, and he's just standing here. There is, however, an earlier image where it's got a dual visor, much more handy. You can lift it up and down rather than putting it onto the side, of Sir Hugh Hastings, and he died of dysentery during the Siege of Calais in 1347. And again, this seems to be an important date for visors because it was also the time of the Black Death and this cycle was begun in the year of the Black Death and it took, that's why it took a long time to finish. Now, visors appear throughout images of medieval warfare and medieval knights and we see later developments, these round visors. What's interesting, only the people at the front of the battle are wearing them. All the people at the back of the battle have them raised up so they can actually see what's going on. And this could lead to um, problems. So close quarter fighting, down. The plate armour of the knights could protect you against most arrows and most of these weapons. So unless they caught you through an armpit or a groin or a joint somewhere, which could then bring you down. And you'd be extremely lucky, uh, unlucky in the early days if you were to receive a blow in that area. However, if you were stupid enough to lift up your visor, you could be shot from the um, uh, walls or by um, other snipers around. And this development of the English longbow that you can see here in the bottom right was to transform warfare and to transform um, armour. There are many examples of this. In the Siege of Almazin, Martin Perez is killed instantly by an arrow to his eye as he lifts his visor. The same with Per Alvarez, shot in the face. He took three days to die in agony. Um, a hundred years later or so, an arrow crossbowman and shouts in Catalan from the battlements. Don Diego lifts up his visor to listen carefully and is shot in the face by him um, and dies. Um, again, further sieges, um, killed by a sniper shot to his face, Juan de Guzman, and Don Juan de Cardona, um, in the Battle of Bioca, he raised his visor to survey the field and is immediately killed by an arrow in his eye. Uh, archery at close range with crossbows was quite accurate. With longbows, it was not until the English archers developed their technique, which involved them training every Sunday. You were, of course, punished if you played football on Sundays. Um, and also you had other reasons to become a good archer. You got many prizes. We have no idea today how powerful these bows were. They're about three times more powerful than an Olympic bow. We know that the soldiers who used them were deformed because we found their skeletons and they're hunched back on one side. 
Um, the pulley of a modern bow would be about eighty pounds. Would be a good bow. Some of these go up to one hundred and eighty pounds that we found on the Mary Rose. We also now know the weight of these arrows because there's one that was found up in the rafters of the uh, Westminster Abbey where someone had shot a pigeon and missed, and it remained up there for several hundred years in perfect condition. They now know the weight of the bow. They now know the weight of the arrow. They know the pulling power of the bow, and they can work out what these things could do. And with a variety of different arrows, these things could pierce armour and not just at short range. But that wasn't the point of them. You'd use an arrow like this to bring down the horses. Or if someone did pull up their visor, they were accurate enough to put it straight into their face and kill them. And this is precisely what happened at the Battle of Shrewsbury, when Percy Northumberland revolts against King Henry IV, and Sir, um, Sir Harry Hotspur, his son, uh, marches south. And on the way south, he recruits these people, who are the Cheshire archers, who were formerly the bodyguard of Richard II, the most notorious archers, the most badly behaved soldiers in London, and everyone was welcome to see them go at the end of that reign. Nevertheless, very useful for... Um, warfare, and they were collected up by these northern rebels. And they marched south, they're hoping to meet up with the Welsh, but they can't, because the England now is otherwise engaged in South Wales. So he's cut off at Shrewsbury, where his friend, Prince Harry, uh, meets him. Now, Prince Harry's only 16 years old, so this is not like the Shakespearean play, where they're portrayed as being of the same age and good drinking partners. Now, Percy lifts up his visor and is killed instantly by a shot in the eye. Prince Harry lifts his visor to see what happened, and he himself is shot just below the eye at the side of the face, going in through the orbit. And we have a description from John Bradmore, the London surgeon who was called up to deal with him as he's taken away um, to Kenilworth Castle. He remains on the field till he's sure his troops have won. The importance of this battle is it's the first time that professional English bowmen met each other en masse in battle. And they describe it. The sky went black. It was a terrible day. Before the first arrow struck, another five arrows were in the air on their way to their separate targets. And they were deadly accurate at 200 yards. At 100 yards, even plate armour was no um, um, sparing to the soldiers. And the, the mayhem was terrible. It's one of the bloodiest battles. Each side lost about 1,600 men, and the further 3,000 on each side were wounded, of whom we can imagine only a small fraction would survive. Now, what happens is they enlarge the wound. The local barbers have split it as they've tried to take it out. So obviously it's one of these barbed arrows that's gone in. The first thing you have to do is put special retractors in to widen the wound in the face. So they open up the orbit beneath the eye. He describes this very well. And gradually, by putting in lint, he lifts up and takes the barb out. He then dresses the wound with honey, which we now know to be an antiseptic, and slowly allows it to close over 21 days, taking the pus out and cleaning the wound, which then heals by a priori by primary healing and granuloma tissue, which is why we never see Henry V in face on. We only ever see him on this side because the other side must have looked horrific after this surgery. And how he sustained this surgery as a young boy and survived it is a miracle because, as was pointed out in many um, um, contemporary articles on jousting, to have a sliver in the eye of more than three inches was you could not survive it. And there are two documented incidents of people surviving it. One is Henry, and the other one we're going to come and talk to later. But because it's quite dangerous, this jousting, particularly if you imagine inventing a game where the face is the target, 
It's not going to be surprising. You're going to get eye injuries. And not surprisingly, they did. You got extra points for hitting the face. A bit like boxing. You know, if you actually cause brain injury, you get more points. Lovely sport. Well, this was their version of it. And um, here we have them developing kind of good protection. They're imagining they're going to be hit from below, so that's going to be going above. But if you put your head down to look through that slit, you're right on target for the lance to go into your face. And if it broke, you'd get a splinter. We know quite a lot about this because of the Hausch book, um, which is a German secular manuscript that tells us lots about how the knights were dressed, how they were prepared. You've got even a little bit of horse racing and hair coursing going on in the background as light entertainment. Here we are. In the art of warfare, the jouster must focus on the eye slits of his opponents, not the tip of your lance. We're now going to make the face a target. Here we are. Bang. The lance splits here. This guy's probably lucky. If the lance had split further down near his face, it would have gone into his helm, through his eye, and killed him. And again, we have other ones. Low cavalier. Striking the head. You get lots of points. Aim for the head. Now, the risk of eye injury is greater, he says, because of the instinct of, the, of you closing your eyes when you've got something coming straight towards you. And he says, don't close your eyes. Keep on looking. And then you won't get the eye injury because that last minute you'll be able to move out of the way. Good advice. But actually almost impossible, you know, when you've got a closing speed of two heavy knights charging at each other to do. And, of course... There are many celebrated examples of eye injuries. Federica de Montfaltre was probably one of the most famous. The Duke of Urbino lost his eye um, in a joust. Um, now, what he then does is he asks his surgeons to remove the bridge of his nose so he can actually have a field of view on this side because he's worried about assassinations. And if you realise where he comes from and who his neighbours were, you could see that's a very realistic um, search. So here we have the man with the first nose job, if you like, uh, done deliberately um, for um, vision. This is famous, the Pass of Honor. Um, now, Suero de Quinoz, um, he of the pass, is what he was eventually called, El del Paso, um, with ten of his companions, camps out on this field. This is the road of the pilgrimage. And every knight that went past it was challenged to a duel. And they swore they would stay there until they broke 300 lances. Unfortunately, they didn't make this. After 166, the whole lot was so injured and badly injured, and several had died, they were unable to continue. So they called it a day and declared honour had been satisfied. And, of course, they are lampooned in Don Quixote uh, a couple of hundred years later. But look and see what happened here. Diego de Bazan, a four-digit splinter, penetrates his visor and goes into the eye. He leaves the field saying, "'Tis nothing.'" But he's one of the very, very few people to survive that injury. Aspect to Clamour, he's fatally injured by the lance thrust through his eye, and he's denied an ecclesiastical burial. Now, the Council of Clermont had been lifted by Pope John, but in Castile, the bishops interpreted the law based on the councils, and they didn't base it on decrees made by individual popes. So if you actually were killed in a joust, you were not allowed to have a Christian burial in this part of the world. So... Probably the most important death, if you like, was King Henry II of France, who, to celebrate the peace between himself and the Holy Roman Empire, um, has a tournament. And he invites Gabriel Montgomery, the captain of his King Scottish Guard, to come and have a joust. And here's a picture of this joust, done a couple of hundred years later, showing what happened. He gets pierced by a sliver of a lance in his eye. Um, they remove it, and then they bleed him, which was um, not uncommon to do in those days. The, you know, if you had a bloody injury, they, they 
lost a bit more blood, and hopefully there'd be less blood would come out as the pressure dropped dangerously. And he lapsed into unconsciousness. The royal surgeon was Ambrose Parry. But interestingly, his enemy sent him up Andrea Fesalius, who we've spoken about before, the great anatomist and great surgeon. They both decided there was nothing further to be done. And Catherine de Medici refused to allow Diane de Poitiers this wonderful painting of her by Francois Clouet, which I think actually gives you the clue as to what type of girl she was. And so the wife was not keen to have her in um, the uh, deathbed, and the king dies, aged 40 years. Montgomery sensibly packs up and goes off to Normandy, uh, becomes a Protestant, but Catherine never forgives him, and eventually has him beheaded in 1574. You've got to be careful about these Medicis, as we saw on the, the last slide. You, know, you even have half your nose taken off to check one's not coming in on the blind side if you lose your right. Now, it's not only in those days. Even nowadays, people die in jousting. And here we have the UK Daily Mail, 54-year-old former teacher, was performing a stunt at short notice for a television history programme where they wanted to reenact a jousting. And he is hit through the eye with a lance, and exactly as the old books say, you die. And he died even today. So there was very little that Andre, uh, Ambrose Paré or Vesalius could have done. Now, you can also be, have severe eye damage without having Lansing. Um, a newlywed lawyer, which is always a bad news when you see this in an American newspaper, um, he has damage to his left eye after a clanging match between um, uh, swords. And a sliver of metal flies into his eyes. Now, we know that that's exactly what happened in medieval times because we have a contemporary account from the Rolls of Westminster that says, when my Lord Pym came up, they struck so many sparks by hitting each other on the helm, the helmet, and with their swords. And it was all part of the um, spectacle. Now, eventually, as we know, bows and arrows fall out of fashion. And the reason they fall out of fashion is the armour got quite good. And so armour could actually protect most knights as long as they didn't lift their visor. But they couldn't protect them against the arquebus, which is about um, 100 metres per second faster at close range. And we have this wonderful story of the Marquis de Saluzzo, who actually comes out in front of the walls of this very building here during the siege and says, I challenge anybody to come out and we'll have a joust, we'll have a fight. Normally a couple of arrows would have come at him, pinged off his armour, no trouble. The problem is these guys were there, blasted him out of his saddle at short range, killing him instantly with a new fangled weapon. Um, eventually the town falls and the uh, Spanish commander of the Imperial forces, Del Vasto, says, who was the fantastic shot? And this guy goes, it was me, Your Honour, right, hang him. And they took him and hanged him from this window and revenge was uh, exhausted. Uh, now the point being is, is that armour is now finished. There is no point having military protection advisors to protect you against artillery any longer. As Nelson found out, he was in command of this ship, which is called the Armageddon, in the siege of Calvi when we were conquering Corsica. And a shot comes and hits the, a stone where he's viewing this battle. He's actually stood on this rock here, watching the battle from here. And it's now on private land, but there is a little marble thing, which if you ask nicely, and if you're not French, they will let you go and have a look at, which says, here it was that Nelson fell on this fateful day in uh, 1794. Now, contrary to most opinion in popular books, he did not wear an eye patch. This is him after the injury, you can see there is something wrong with the eye, and you can see the scars of the injury around here, which he had, and the eyebrow missing here from this explosion. He had an explosive injury that blinded him, caused a distortion of the pupil, 
and a little prolapse of the iris. How do we know that? Because two Hertz certificates were raised on HMS Victory, and a further Hertz certificate was raised in the Royal College of Surgeons, who since the days of King Charles II had the sole right to raise Hertz certificates for the Navy. And these were important for naval officers to get them because it depended what their pension was. And if you had several Hertz certificates, no, look at Nelson. I mean, gosh, lost a leg, lost an arm, an eye, you know. There wasn't much left of him. He must have been due for a very good pension if he hadn't have uh, managed to not been shot by the, um, the French in his final battle. Um, it actually shows up in the earlier version, which was a year earlier than that completed version. And you can see the injuries much more accurate in his face. And also the sunken eye, something we call enophthalmos. He did have a serious blow here that also caused damage to the orbit, which I will show you. And there are many examples of people showing one side of their faces. This is Kutuzov, who is one of the most charismatic Russian generals ever, who lost his eye during the siege that he had to undertake when they actually went into the town in the Crimea during the pacification of the Crimea under um, Catherine uh, and the conquest of that region. Now, uh, he subsequently lost the battle, at, uh, the battle of Austerlitz and a draw probably at Borodino at best, but what he did, it's the beginning of the end of Napoleon's Grand Armée and they entered a deserted Moscow and he developed the Scorch Earth policy. So, one-eyed, he got a, a medal for it. He got a St. George Order, fourth class, from Catherine. He was a bit controversial. He kept on falling out with the various Tsars and people in charge. And then, when they realised they were in a terrible mess, they would appoint him back to be head of the army again. And uh, the, the things seemed not to change very much for a couple of hundred years in that part of the world. And James Guthrie was important. He was a general surgeon. Doesn't describe any eye injuries in particular here, probably because there weren't very many in those days. They, were, they occurred. But he had a tremendous experience of eye, and he publishes immediately after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, his operative surgeon, the eye, that goes on to three editions and is still a major textbook to the middle of that century, um, and um, furthermore founds the Royal Westminster Ophthalmic Hospital. And non-combat disease is really an important issue here. And it's um, either the um, Egyptian ophthalmia, which is trachoma, and this is what should be the white of the eye that is just a mass of inflamed... Um, so we still see this disease, but we rarely see it at this level. Occasionally we do in children with gonococcus, and babies can actually get a big reaction of this if they get gonococcal ophthalmia, which was very rare. I think the last case I saw until this year was probably 25 years ago, but it, ha it is now reoccurring, luckily rarely, because it does lead to blindness. And, and these diseases lead to scarring of the eyes, and more soldiers are inactivated by sickness and blindness than are inactivated by bullets and blast injuries from the French. Now, Baron Dominique Jean Larry writes a, a very good series, and he thinks he, none of his soldiers go blind from this, which is interesting. Um, the treatment, neither of the treatments seem to have been effective. And interestingly, Gachet, this is the painting that was sold, the most expensive painting in the world. But actually, it's of a very interesting chap. I don't care what the painting cost. This guy wrote a manuscript on military ophthalmia. There's only one copy of it. It was never published. And some parts of it have been translated um, and are available. But very, very interesting. A very important problem. The problem was so important, indeed, that Morpheus Eye Hospital was founded to treat these patients. Very infectious. You don't want something like this getting out into the general population when these guys come home. Now, injuries increase in frequency. 
uh, through all the wars. We can see around this time the incidents in the British Army um, in the Crimea was reported at about um, 0.65% of all injuries. The French had a slightly higher rate. They had nearly 2%. Um, the United States Civil War, 0.5% recorded on the northern side, but much higher on the southern side. And we're going to see some interesting slides on that in a moment. But the increase in every subsequent war, right up to Desert Storm, and furthermore, in the current war with the Americans, not with the English soldiers, but the American soldiers, there have been reports of up to 29%. So there is a massive increase in the eye as a target of war. And that's important, because if you shoot a soldier in the leg, it is quite possible for him to continue holding his post and shooting his machine gun with minimal support. If you shoot him in the eye, not only do you take him out screaming, you take out 16 of his colleagues coming round, trying to deal with him and get him out of the battlefield site and deal with this horrific injury. Many of them, because it's called polytrauma, will be so awful, the injuries, that the soldiers dealing with them are promptly sick and, and unable themselves to continue. So there's a very good reason to target the eye if you're an insurgent. We do have well-documented uh, episodes of people being shot, losing the arm, or being cut um, in the eye, as this poor soldier here, Private James Ollie, very, very brave indeed, uh, decorated, but in fact was never supported on his way home, was discharged and ends up his life begging until he writes his memoirs here. And um, Brudenel Carter, who again, through his experience here, uh, after the charge of the light ray, becomes an authority and becomes the ophthalmic surgeon to St George's. Not the current one that's south of the river, but the one that's on the corner of Knightsbridge. And this famous picture, which I know is one of Frank's favourite pictures that I can never cease to show, and I will show again in my last lecture, and I'll talk of it in more detail. But again, it shows a returning soldier who's blind, and this was at the last year of the Crimean War. Now, the war between the states, as we call it over here, the American Civil War, as people sort of south of Virginia call it, the War of Northern Aggression, uh, was a very bloody war indeed. And there was a new instrument that came into action there, which is called the mini ball, which is a very, very powerful high-energy ball that caused a lot of injuries. There were also non-combatant injuries due to illness. And this is Jefferson Davis, who is the president of the Confederate States, who went blind in his left eye from a painful separation. And he had uveitis, probably caused by herpes simplex and underwent two eye injuries. This is a, an injury with a high velocity. He's got a parotid fistula. It's never healed. Um, and here are eye injuries that were documented um, by Dr. Bonteku, who actually took before and after pictures um, of the surgery to try and repair it. Now, the surgery was very crude. They didn't know how to enucleate an eye that was injured properly. So even if prosthetics were available, and they were available, and they were issued, not very many of them, 49, in fact, in the northern states, that's all. There were many, many more eye injuries. It's because the injuries are so bad, this orbit cannot take a prosthetic eye. It will just fall out because they didn't know how to repair it. Plastic surgery had not been invented. That's going to happen in this war. And early on in this war, injuries happened. Um, here is Sir Adrian, who was blinded as he was trying to flush out the Mad Muller from one of his forts. And he's hit twice in the eye, loses not only his eye but his ear, and gets awarded the DSO. Now, trench warfare increases uh, facial injuries. Uh, Dr. Abbe, the American surgeon, says, the soldiers fail to understand the menace of the machine gun. Having read the soldiers' diaries, I can tell Dr. Abbe, if he was still alive, that they did not fail to notice the menace of the machine gun. But they were obeying orders, and as they came out of the trenches, the very first thing that becomes a target is their head and neck. And the very first thing of the head and neck that becomes a target under the helmet is their eyes. So it's hardly surprising that eyes become a target. Furthermore, they become a target because of these 
machines, the tanks. And the Germans soon realised that ordinary bullets flew off this. But then if they took the bullet out, turned it upside down, double-packed the shell with two lots of cordite, put it back in, 30% of those cases the bullet came out flying straight, would hit dead on and spray metal into the tank, blinding and scalding all the soldiers inside and sometimes blowing up the tank if the ammunition came. So they invented these splatter masks to protect them from this injury. But that wasn't the answer. The answer was to invent better tanks, which they did. And the Mark IV tank is brought out in the Battle of Cambrai and blasts a hole seven miles wide through the German lines. And why that was not the end of the war remains controversial to this day because it wasn't followed up. So the Germans invent this. This is the world's first anti-tank rifle with a special bullet that goes in it. And this would penetrate that armour and again spew metal around and kill people inside. The problem was it took two men to fire it and would dislocate the shoulder of the person who fired it. But um, th there were many, many soldiers and there weren't that many tanks, so it was considered to be worthwhile. And 16,000 of these rifles were made during the war. Unfortunately, nothing could happen against gas. And gas particularly targeted the eyes, although it could affect other organs such as the skin, and this is a mustard gas injury, which almost certainly will be lethal to this um, soldier because so much of the skin area is burnt. It's unlikely that without modern resuscitation techniques he would have survived that injury. But soldiers come out of the gloom wearing these gas masks, uh, and the defendants are also wearing gas masks. It must have been horrific. And John Singer Sargent, who... Unfortunately, a dear friend of mine, Julian Barrow, who actually um, uh, owned Whistler's um, studio, which actually looked a bit like this. Unfortunately, he died um, just three weeks ago. Wanted to come along. He's one of the world experts on Sargent and helped me a lot with this. Sargent uh, painted this beautiful portrait, which was considered to be absolutely obscene by the French. And he fell out of favour um, and was lambasted in the French press and came to England. He's father was interesting, an eye surgeon at the Wills Hospital, but he left America when his daughter died and his wife had a nervous breakdown and couldn't recover. And they went to live in Florence on a small pension. They survived all their lives. And he went to art school. He was born after this event in Florence. Um, comes to England, um, where his style is accepted um, rather than France, which is interesting considering why it was not accepted in France. And he goes off as a war artist to the war with Henry Tonks. Now, Henry Tonks is an interesting character. We'll come to him. These are drawings they made on the Duen Road um, where the corps were coming in, and these are the gas soldiers. And he was so horrified that what he saw, he produced one of the most iconic images probably of any war, which is this painting, which is gassed which shows the soldiers lined up, as is described by Tonks's diary, which I showed you before, of these orderlies bringing them up. People have thought that there are similarities based on Peter Bruegel, the elder, and that's how it was composed in a way, um, and that may or may not be true, but certainly a very poignant image, and actually from the written descriptions, a very accurate uh, description of what was going on. Now, the way of evacuating these casualties was rather crude. You went to a forward post out of the mud where you cleaned up, then you were bounced on probably a horse-drawn van along unmade roads and cobbled roads, and eventually you were evacuated out. Um, it would be many, many months before you would actually get close attention to your injuries, um, except for emergency ones where saline infusions would be put in as this poor soldier here shot in the head and neck is having this saline infusion. Uh, and they returned with these horrific scars that we can see from this poor burnt pilot here. 
Now, he can't go out into society like this. And many of them committed suicide. He's completely lost the eye here. He has just barely a socket here. And, of course, these eyelids are not going to wet this eye and allow it to survive. So Queen Mary's, Queen's Hospital, now called Queen Mary's Hospital, was set up in Kent. And a very important surgeon, Sir Harold Gillies, who was the plastic surgeon at Croydon, my old hospital, was transferred there as the military surgeon and sets up the plastic surgery unit. And here he is. And he invents dozens of new ways of transferring tissue that would otherwise die. If you just put a skin graft onto that pilot's face, I showed you, it's going to die. There's no blood supply. So you have to transfer it up with the blood supply, and that's what he invented. But he's also then got to make the face look roughly like a human, and preferably like the human it was before the war. And this is where Henry Tonks comes in, who had actually qualified as a surgeon, but also had doubly qualified as an artist. And he, he was the companion to Sargent um, in 1917, 1918, when those drawings were done for Gast. But he was more important because he did these drawings of the wounded surgeon, of the wounded um, soldiers, which enabled the surgeons to have a record of what it was like before and able to rebuild these faces um, at a later date. And some of these injuries were horrific. This is very similar to the injury I showed you of the pilot who survived. This is a pilot who didn't survive, and he died in agony from his bones. But you can see there's no eye. The eye becomes a target. It just, it just gets fried and uh, disappears. Um, horrific injuries, um, and probably normal. Look at this handsome young Canadian here. This is his crash plane. This is what he looks like. And this is what he looks like in 1925 when he's rehabilitated. This is astonishing. No one had ever been able to achieve results like this before. And Gillies becomes overnight an amazing hero. And I'd love just to talk to you about Gillies and tell you what he did and how he did it by using these tubular pedicle grafts. And this is the wax model in the Gillies archives that was saved by Dr. Andrew Bamji, who's a rheumatologist. And all of this was going to be destroyed. And he alone, actually, um, is responsible for saving much of this. And m much of it now resides in the Royal College of Surgeons. I'm grateful to them for giving me permission to show you the images tonight. And you can see the theory and the practice and how these people were rebuilt. And then after a while, these artificial eyelids become somewhat functional, allowing this poor sailor who was burnt um, half to death in the Battle of Jutland not only to survive, but to go out and face the world again. And again, rebuilding in impossible circumstances the uh, right-hand side of the face, which has been completely lost, um, he's still got a cicatric electropion here, which is the outward pulling of the eye, which is going to be dealt with at a later layer. Darrell Lindsay, he's the Australian version of Tonks, and describes and does drawings in watercolour, which don't have that vividness of Tonks, but nevertheless were produced for the same reasons. Now, those unlucky um, so who were undergoing treatment for a long time couldn't really get out of the hospitals, and many of them became recluse. This is the Royal Patriotic Victoria building just over Wandsworth Bridge on the left side, which was built as an asylum for the orphans of the Crimean War. It's taken over and becomes London Hospital Number 3 and becomes specialised in plastic surgery. And this artist, um, De Francis Derwent Wood, who's most famous for this statue to the machine gunners after the war, comes in and makes masks, and he calls it the mask for facial disfigurement, and the soldiers called it the tin noses shop. And what he did was to use sculptors, and in fact he had people helping him, such as Kathleen Scott, the widow of Sir Walter Scott, and this is the sculpture she made, which existed until two years ago in Christchurch, so it was destroyed in the earthquake. 
And that was made out of Korea marble because they couldn't make it out of bronze uh, because they needed bronze for bullets. So in 1916, it was made out of marble, and then that was shipped over to New Zealand. But they, they had this technique of sculpting these faces and reconstructing, which enabled the surgeons to have an idea of what to do, and also to invent these things, which are tin the tin noses, which were actually not tin. They're, they're copper and bronze, um, and then they're enameled. Originally made out of rubber and painted, but they didn't last very long. But these enameled ones, furthermore, had a much better colour. Uh, they got damaged, and this is a highly damaged version of one here. Now, an f- um, American sculptor, Anna Coleman Ladd, comes over, works with wood, works out how to do this, and sets up her own one in Paris for the French and American soldiers. Her technique is a little bit laborious, it's much better, and some of the and here we are seeing her see the soldiers before and after having these masks fitted, um, and they produced 185 masks for these soldiers. But they are beautiful works of art. They are such a higher grade, but they're produced in fewer numbers and certainly not enough for what was actually required. And both of these studios closed down in the 1920s, unfortunately. But Roehampton had been set up, which allowed continuation of some of the British soldiers. But what happened to the French, the German and American ones was just appalling. And we can see uh, how they were treated later on. In fact, it was written in, a woman actually writes into one of the American papers saying, why can't these men just be put somewhere where we don't have to see them? Whereas in England, the treatment had changed because of Gillies. Gillies had all the park benches in Sidcut Park painted blue. And that was a warning to say, if a man is sitting on this bench, he's going to be disfigured. And you have to treat him with the respect that he deserves, is what it was saying, that colour. And they actually became very well accepted, as was going to be seen with the nephew of Gillies, Archibald Mackendo, who is more famous. Now, this is a very famous picture by Nash, which shows the um, artist's rifles going over the top. Now, Nash, of course... Um, was rejected from the Slade School of Art by Henry Tonks, who was by then the professor. And uh, it's actually said that um, the feeling I got after the interview was that neither the Slade School nor myself would benefit from my attendance at this institution. However, um, he becomes more famous than Tonks, of course, from his uh, raw, modernist images. What's interesting about this attack is that 80 men went over the top, 68 of them never returned. That gives you the level of casualties. And these were people who were poets. Rickworth, of course, wrote this famous poem. I I knew a man, he was my chum, but grew blacker every day. And would not brush the flies away, nor blanch, however fierce the hum of passing shells. I used to read to rouse him random things from Dunn, like get with child by Mindrake root. But you can tell he was far gone, for he lay gaping, mackerel-eyed and stiff and senseless as a post. Even when that old poet cried, I longed to talk with some old lover's ghost. And, of course, he's describing his dead friend who's in front of him, who they can't move, as he slowly decays. And the second stanza um, becomes um, largely forgotten, but actually not forgotten, ignored, because he becomes a communist and becomes very anti-war, which was not a popular thing to be in the 1930s, uh, when we were starting all over again. This is how the Germans treated their uh, blind, which is essentially to ignore them and put them into asylums. And these are two blinded veterans from the First World War. And Otto Dix records this with great anger in these images. Of course, this dog here at the bottom here has cocked its leg and is actually urinating on the old soldier, which shows the contempt that was held for them. This um, painting uh, existed, but then was destroyed by the Nazis as being um, degenerate art. 
There were civilian injuries. This was the biggest explosion in the world until they invented nuclear bombs. And this is the end of the First World War when this ammunition ship blows up in Halifax Harbour, causing hundreds of casualties and many, many people blinded. This man, sorry, this man here, who subsequently went on, the last thing he ever saw was that smokestack. Because the next thing that happened was the flash of the explosion, which immediately blinded him, and the glass from the window of his house imploded into his face. Uh, he was playing with his toy train at the time when he was two and a half years old, and here's a picture of him with his injuries in the hospital. Now, civilian injuries also happened to military people. Adolf Galland had two plane crashes, both of them damaging his eyes. Uh, he got back to flying again by saying, yes, I've got some... Um, uh, glass in my eye, but it's causing me no problem at all. Um, he was ordered to undergo eye tests, but got his brother to steal the charts from the hospital so he could memorise them the night before, and gets in. And unfortunately for the RAF, um, he goes on to fly one of these and shoots down 104 um, Allied pilots subsequently to that, ending up with the Galland Zirkus in these uh, jet planes, and Galland himself has seven kills in these jet planes before he himself is wounded and then is out of the war. He goes on to become an advisor to the Argentine um, Air Force, becomes great friends with many British Spitfire pilots who he'd shot down, and um, is actually um, involved with the film, The Battle of Britain, and giving advice. An extraordinary chap, rather charming gentleman, allegedly famous for saying to Goering, saying, what can I do to help you in this Battle of Britain? He said, give me a squadron of Spitfires. But he didn't like Goering very much, and Goering didn't like him at all. And there are many examples of uh, them having a, a row with each other. Famous images from World War II begin to give us an idea that eye injuries are increasing in frequency, and indeed they are. And in fact, Sir Harold uh, Ridley, looking at the perspex injuries that in these Spitfire pilots, involves the interocular lens. Uh, the British, of course, used perspex, this British material, ICI, for the canopies because it was lightweight. They didn't use glass. And perspex turns out to be benign in the eye, unlike many other materials. And it's lightweight, so you can make an interocular lens out of it, which you couldn't do with glass. Many civilian casualties, Morfields, had closed down its routine work and moved it to Edgware, but still retained a service during the daytime with the doctors, patients and nurses going underground at nighttime during this bombing, and also at Barts, where many of the surgeons and nurses at Barts were injured and some of them indeed killed during this raid, as you can see this iconic image here. Um, the Japanese had a fair share of eye injuries as well, particularly the most important one was Saburo Sakai, who probably shot down more aeroplanes than anybody else I've ever heard of in my life. He had 60-odd kills. It was extraordinary in this theatre of the war. But what's extraordinary about him is after he was shot down, he pulled out at sea level and then flies for four and a half hours, paralysed on one side, blind, having been shot through the eye by um, a bullet, and then gives his report before collapsing and taken off for his um, injuries. And here he is coming out of his aeroplane as he's photographed from that mission. Extraordinary. And there were many extraordinary RAF pilots as well. Richard Hillary, who wrote his memoirs, and I'll suggest, because I haven't got time to tell you this wonderful story, that you read them, because they are wonderful. The problem is, he was killed a year after he wrote them, in a Spitfire accident. But he does describe, when he was badly burnt coming in, and Archibald McIndoe here, the nephew of Harold Gillies, taps him on the fingers and goes, OK, that's four new eyelids for you, son, but we have to get the face ready first. And that's what he was going to graft to give him his eyesight back. And there they are. 
They wore, they wore their own clothes, they didn't have to wear the battlefield blues, and they had beer and beer barrels in the wards. So they were quite jolly places. And they became quite popular in East Grinstead, and they have the Guinea Plug Club still meet to this day. And the local people of East Grinstead were welcoming them, and they stayed in their homes so that they would have a normal family life until they'd fully recovered to be able to go back to their own families. Eye injuries, many, many of them later on. Vietnam, they really start to increase uh, for a number of reasons. High explosives and also uh, low um, attrition warfare, but with high explosives. And, of course, this comes to a demon in Iraq. Now, of course, why are eye injuries comp? Well, look at this. You know, somebody, it's a bit like those knights, isn't it? So we had to develop eye protection. And here, this guy, one very, very lucky US Marine who happened to be wearing his goggles. What would be interesting would be, let's have a look here. Which of these soldiers is wearing the goggles? They're all on the back of the helmets, aren't they? They're like the knights that took the visors off. So the problem is, is you've got to make the goggles that don't steam up, don't get scratched, are comfortable, are lightweight, and also bulletproof. And that material doesn't exist yet. Um, although there's a compromise with some of the modern materials. This is um, De Castro, who's the only blind officer in the special services in America. He was blinded on top of, bilaterally blinded on top of a roof where he was giving covering fire to allow a group of his soldiers to escape. And all the two soldiers next to him were both killed in this high explosion round. The Birmingham eye trauma has got nothing to do with Birmingham in England, it's Birmingham in America, and this allows us now to classify these, these um, injuries and enables us to do research and talk about these horrific injuries that soldiers that we are sending out to fight our wars are suffering at a level of unprecedented frequency. These wars are damaging eyes at a rate that it's difficult to imagine. And what we need to do here is to... Um, uh, do some research. Um, could you play the video for me, please? <coughs> play the video. You just move the mouse onto it. Um, so, Rick Sponsel, a colleague of mine, has developed this system with the American Armed Forces in, uh, in Texas to look at how injuries occur with, with um, missiles. First of all, the direct injury... And this is all done with supercomputers. It's very, very, very complicated what they're doing here. And all the, the stresses and strains in a realistic orbit um, are being monitored. Now, these are oblique views. Now, what happens here is the eye comes out of the orbit. Can you see? Which gives it some protection. Whereas before, it was smashed with a direct view. But any glancing blow to the side, the eye comes out. And this can lead to a number of injuries behind the eye, such as rupture of the optic uh, nerve, for which we have not been able to explain why that's occurred now, but from these experiments we have been able to explain it. Could you play this video for me? And this is the supercomputer, that's it at the bottom, yep. Now this is a supercomputer done, look at this, this is, this is four seconds, five seconds, you know, it's, it's very, very, very fast this is going. But what it's showing is how these stresses and strains are going through the orbit and the eye and explaining how these injuries are occurring. This is very, very important research because you need this research to explain how things are going to be pre prevented and how to develop the right sort of eye gear. Um, and furthermore, it enables you to do blast injuries as well because blast was never thought to affect the eye, but it does. And this is all going to be published next year and some of it has. And these are the injuries that we see and these can all be explained with this modelling. And this work is of 
of tremendous importance, explaining ruptured globes at the bottom. How does a globe rupture when it's not actually even been hit on that side? Well, looking at those stress-strain forces of how the eye behaves in an orbit that's received a missile or a blast injury explains this. There's a lot of uh, computer um, uh, modelling has gone on here, and the um, results, as I said, have been partly published, and the blast injury results will be published at Arvo this year if anybody's interested or if there's a military um, uh, interest in it, then please contact me and I'll put you in contact with Rick. And what we see is the impact energy is proportional to those different injuries that we get. And blast injuries are really, really important because they're common and they are very difficult to protect against. You can't duck behind a building because a blast wave comes around the building and it's supersonic, so you don't have enough time to work out what's happening. It's then followed by another wave behind it that's got negative pressure that sucks everything back out and, unfortunately, sucks in lots of particles into your eyes. So a blast injures your eyes in two ways. One is that you get the blast injury, which I've just shown you before, which we can model that causes all those in interesting injuries that, when we look at the front of the eye, like Nelson's eye with his blast injury, looked normal but was blind. And now we know how Nelson got those injuries from this modelling that was done, as I showed you before. But furthermore, you get thousands of little metallic particles, and some of these might be bronze or brass or of ferric metal, which is highly reactive in the eye and can damage the retina if it's not taken out. And there are various things that have now been done to evacuate these soldiers to tertiary centres. We, we don't operate on them in the field. And we've also closed down all the different military hospitals that we have here now, and we have a major military trauma centre in Birmingham. And that was done by um, Rory McLean, and he deserves some credit for having done that because it's improved the outcomes of these uh, soldiers, um, undoubtedly, and also their rehabilitation, which is more important. So finally, the future. What might we expect in warfare in the future? Well, that's always a difficult question, isn't it? And the military are always planning for the last war. Well, it may be that the eyes become a very good target. Although they're banned by the Geneva Convention, you don't necessarily have to use visual lasers to blind them. You could use infrared ones. You could find somewhere uh, through the legal loopholes of actually using different light. You don't even have to. You could go back to Archimedes and you could use actually sunlight and blind pilots, because anybody's going to look at a bright light that's flashing over here. And one of the big things about tunable diode lasers is you can change the frequency of those lasers, so even if you've got an eye protection that protects you against one wavelength, if you then tune it to the next wavelength in a millisecond, that can't, so the only eye protection there is completely black, i.e. do not look at the light, which gives you a clue. Maybe the future wars, we won't be sending young pilots out in aeroplanes to get burnt to death and all the rest of it. We might be sending our drones out to fight their drones. And then and it all settles down the Battle of the Robots, as was predicted in 1925. I'll be talking about that in, a, in two lectures' time, uh, so I won't bore you with that at the moment. But just to say to you all, I hope that that was an interesting overview of how eye injuries have always been with us, particularly in warfare, and to impress upon you how many of these soldiers we are going to see who've been injured in their eyes and how this is increasing in frequency. And many thanks to patients, colleagues, the Gillies Archive in particular, variety of colleagues... And um, I'll leave you with this important and image of mass blinding in a battle 100 years ago. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.